0: Part Two, Chapter Four of A Lost Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire Butler. A Lost Lady by Willa Sibbert Cather. Part Two, Chapter Four. The weather was dry and intensely hot for several weeks, and then, at the end of July thunderstorms and torrential rains broke upon the Sweetwater Valley. The river burst out of its banks, all the creeks were up, and the stubble of Ivy Peter's wheat fields lay under water. A wide lake and two rushing creeks now separated the foresters from the town. Ben Kieser rode over to them every day to do the chores and to take them their mail. One evening, Ben, with his slicker and leather mail bag, had just come out of the post office and was preparing to mount his horse when Neil Herbert stopped him to ask in a low voice whether he had got the Denver paper. Oh, yes, I always wait for the papers. She likes to have them to read of an evening. Guess it's pretty lonesome over there. He swung into his saddle and splashed off. Neil walked slowly around to the hotel for dinner. He had found something very disconcerting in the Denver paper. Frank Ellinger's picture on the Society page, along with Constance Ogden's. They had been married yesterday at Colorado Springs, and were stopping at the Antlers. After supper, Neil put on his rubber coat and started for the foresters. When he reached the first creek, he found that the footbridge had been washed out from the far bank and lay obliquely in the stream battered at by the yellow current which might at any moment carry it away. One could not cross the ford without a horse. He looked irresolutely across the submerged bottom lands. The house was dark, no lights in the parlor windows. The rain was beginning to fall again. Perhaps she had rather be alone tonight. He would go over tomorrow. He went back to the law office and tried to make himself comfortable though the place was in distracting disorder. The continued rain had set one of the chimneys leaking, had brought down streams of soot and black water, and flooded the stove and the judge's once-handsome Brussels carpet. The tinner had been there all afternoon, trying to find what was the matter with the flue, cutting a new sheet-iron drawer to fit under the stovepipe, but at six o'clock he had gone away, leaving tools and sheets of metal lying about. The rooms were damp and cold. Neil put on a heavy sweater, since he could not have a fire, lit the big coal-oil lamp, and sat down with a book. When at last he looked at his watch, it was nearly midnight, and he had been reading three hours. He would have another pipe and go to bed. He had scarcely lit it when he heard quick hurrying footsteps in the echoing corridor outside. He got to the door in an instant, was there to open it before Mrs. Forrester had time to knock. He caught her by the arm and pulled her in. Everything but her wet white face was hidden by a black rubber hat and a coat that was much too big for her. Streams of water trickled from the coat, and when she opened it he saw that she was drenched to the waist. Her black dress clung in a muddy pulp about her. "'Mrs. Forrester,' he cried, "'you can't have crossed the creek. It's up to a horse's belly in the ford. I came over the bridge, what's left of it?' It shook under me, but I'm not heavy. She threw off her hat and wiped the water from her face with her hands. Why didn't you ask Ben to bring you over on his horse? Here, please swallow this. She pushed his hand aside. Wait, afterwards. Ben? I didn't think until after he was gone. It's the telephone I want, long distance. Get me Colorado Springs, the antlers, quick. Then Neil noticed that she smelled strong of spirits. It steamed above the smell of rubber and creek mud and wet cloth. She snatched up the desk telephone, but he gently took it from her. "'I'll get them for you, but you're in no condition to talk now. You're out of breath. Do you really want to talk tonight? You know Mrs. Beasley will hear every word you say. Mrs. Beasley was the Sweetwater Central and an indefatigable reporter of everything that went over the wires.'" Mrs. Forrester, sitting in his uncle's desk chair, tapped the carpet with the toe of her rubber boot. Do hurry, please, she said in that polite warning tone of which even Ivy Peters was afraid. Neil aroused the sleepy central and put in the call. She asks whom would you wish to speak to? Frank Allinger. Say Judge Pomeroy's office wishes to speak to him. Neil began soothing Mrs. Beasley at the other end. No, not the management, Mrs. Beasley, one of the guests. Frank Ellinger, he spelled the name. Yes, Judge Pomeroy's office wants to talk to him. I'll be right here, as soon as you can, please. He put down the instrument. I'd rather, you know, publish anything in the town paper than telephone it through Mrs. Beasley. Mrs. Forrester paid no heed to him, did not look at him, sat staring at the wall. I can't see why you didn't call me up and ask me to bring a horse over for you if you felt you must get to a long-distance telephone tonight. Yes, I didn't think of it. I only knew I had to get over here, and I was afraid something might stop me. She was watching the telephone as if it were alive. Her eyes were shrunk to hard points. Her brows, drawn together in an acute angle, kept twitching in the frown which held them the singular frown of one overcome by alcohol or fatigue who is holding on to consciousness by the strength of a single purpose. Her blue lips, the black shadows under her eyes, made her look as if some poison were at work in her body. They waited and waited. Neil understood that she did not wish him to talk. Her mind was struggling with something. With every blink of her lashes, she seemed to face it anew. Presently she rose as if she could bear the suspense no longer, and went over to the window, leaned against it. Did you leave Captain Forrester alone? Neil asked suddenly. Yes, nothing will happen over there. Nothing ever does happen, she answered wildly, wringing her hands. The telephone buzzed. Mrs. Forrester darted toward the desk, but Neil lifted the instrument in his left hand and barred her way with his right. "'Try to be calm, Mrs. Forrester. "'When I get Ellinger, I will let you talk to him, "'and Central will hear every word you say, remember?' "'After some exchanges with the Colorado office, "'he pointed her to the chair. "'Sit down, and I'll give it to you. "'He is on the wire.' "'He did not dare to leave her alone, "'though it was awkward enough to be a listener. "'He walked to the window and stood with his back to the desk "'where she was sitting. "'Is that you, Frank?' This is Marion. I won't keep you a moment. You were asleep? So early? That's not like you. You've reformed already, haven't you? That's what marriage does, they say. No, I wasn't altogether surprised. You might have taken me into your confidence, though. Haven't I deserved it? A long listening pause. Neil stared stupidly at the dark window. He had steeled his nerves for wild reproaches. The voice he heard behind him was her most charming, playful, affectionate, intimate, with a thrill of pleasant excitement that warmed its slight formality and burned through the commonplace words like the color in an opal. He simply held his breath while she fluttered on. "'Where shall you go for your honeymoon?' "'Oh, I'm very sorry. So soon. You must take good care of her. Give her my love. I should think California at this time of the year might be right.' It went on like this for some minutes. The voice, it seemed to Neil, was that of a woman, young, beautiful, happy, warm, and at her ease, sitting in her own drawing room and talking on a stormy night to a dear friend far away. Oh, unusually well for me. Stop and see for yourself. You will be going to Omaha on business next week before California. Oh, yes, you will. Step off between trains you know how welcome you are always. A long pause. An exclamation from Mrs. Forrester made Neil turn sharply round. Now it was coming. Her voice was darkening with every word. I think I understand you. You are not speaking from your own room? What, from the office booth? Oh, then I understand you very well indeed. Neil looked about in alarm. It was time to stop her. But how? The voice went on. Play safe. When have you ever played anything else? You know, Frank, the truth is that you're a coward. A great, hulking coward. Do you hear me? I want you to hear. You've got a safe thing at last, I should think. Safe and pasty. How much stock did you get with it? A big block, I hope. Now let me tell you the truth. I don't want you to come here. I never want to see you again while I live, and I forbid you to come and look at me when I'm dead. I don't want your hateful eyes to look at my dead face. Do you hear me? Why don't you answer me? Don't dare to hang up the receiver, you coward. Oh, you big, Frank, Frank, say something. Oh, he's shut me off. I can't hear him." She flung the receiver down, dropped her head on the desk, and broke into heavy groaning sobs. Neil stood over her and waited with composure. For once, he had been quick enough. He had saved her. The moment that quivering passion of hatred and wrong leaped into her voice, he had taken the big shears left by the tinner and cut the insulated wire behind the desk. Her reproaches had got no farther than this room. When the sobs ceased, he touched her shoulder. He shook her, but there was no response. She was asleep, sunk in a heavy stupor. Her hands and face were so cold that he thought there could not be a drop of warm blood left in her body. He carried her into his room, cut off her drenched clothing, wrapped her in his bathrobe, and put her into his own bed. She was absolutely unconscious. He blew out the light, locked her in, and left the building, going as fast as he could to Judge Pomeroy's cottage he roused his uncle and briefly explained the situation. Can you dress and go down to the office for the rest of the night, Uncle Judge? Someone must be with her, and I'll get over to the captain at once. He certainly oughtn't to be left alone. If she could get across the bridge, I guess I can. By the way, she began talking wild, and I cut the telephone wire behind your desk, so keep an eye on it. It might make trouble on a stormy night like this. I'll get a livery hack and take Mrs. Forrester home in the morning before the town is awake. When daylight began to break, Neil went into Captain Forrester's room and told him that his wife had been sent for in the night to answer a long-distance telephone call, and that now he was going to bring her home. The captain lay propped up on three big pillows. Since his face had grown fat and relaxed, its ruggedness had changed to an almost Asiatic smoothness, He looked like a wise old Chinese Mandarin as he lay listening to the young man's fantastic story with perfect composure, merely blinking and saying, Thank you, Neil. Thank you. As Neil went through the sleeping town on his way to the livery barn, he saw the short, plump figure of Mrs. Beasley, like a boiled pudding sewed up in a blue kimono, waddling through the feathery asparagus bed behind the telephone office. She had already been next door to tell her neighbor Molly Tucker, the seamstress, the story of her exciting night. Chapter 4